This is Hotspots H2O from Circle of Blue's award-winning team of journalists, where each week we examine regions, populations, and countries that are at most risk from water-related stresses. With stories from around the world, we're revealing the challenges that individuals confront and the solutions they discover as they strive to build resilient communities in the face of the fast-growing competition between water, food, and energy in a changing climate. Welcome to another edition of Hotspots H2O. I'm Brett Walton, a Circle of Blue reporter. Today, our topic is groundwater. I'm speaking with William Alley, who's Director of Science and Technology for the National Groundwater Association, and Rosemary Alley, who's a science writer. Together, they wrote the recently published book titled High and Dry, Meeting the Challenges of the World's Growing Dependence on Groundwater. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Uh, so groundwater has been uh, a trending topic, as they say, over the last couple of years, particularly because of the drought in California. I'm wondering why write this book now? Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and take that question. Groundwater is, uh, it's really the neglected child of the water world. There, you know, there's so much attention on surface water, and most of the time, groundwater is barely on the radar. So we decided to tackle the topic and try to write a book that would reach a, a broader audience. So we worked hard to make it interesting. We have lots of good stories in the book, and some are pretty amazing stories. So that's, that's why we wrote the book. Uh, what's an amazing groundwater story? Well, India is certainly one of the one of the most critical countries in the world in terms of they probably come in number one for mismanagement of their groundwater resources. India pumps over a quarter of the groundwater of all of the countries in the world combined, which is like filling an 18-inch diameter pipe to the moon and back 2,000 times. So they are facing serious groundwater overdraft, depletion. There's some warnings that there's some pretty pretty serious consequences if they don't get this thing under control. Yeah, the book is, is divided into thematic sections. You have sections on pollution, on ecosystems, um, legal issues, and several others, uh, but it also has chapters that are based on sort of geographical concerns. So there's the section on India, which you mentioned, a one on Arizona, and then a third on sub-Saharan Africa. So you mentioned India a bit, but what stood out to you in these other examples as, as something to highlight for its own chapter? Well, Arizona has one of the most progressive groundwater management programs. In 1980, they passed the Groundwater Management Act. Uh, The state was in serious overdraft in critical parts of the state. And so they've managed to not just turn this around, but really these aquifers are doing much, much better. Meanwhile, most of the state is still completely unregulated, and they're looking at very serious overdraft in those areas. But nonetheless, they do have a, a program up and running that's been very effective. Yeah, we tried to, when we added Sub-Saharan Africa to, to illustrate sort of another situation, which is an, actually a, a problem with underuse of groundwater, where if they had better access, and of course there are major water quality issues to groundwater responsibly done, it could have a huge impact on the uh, population there. So we kind of picked India, Arizona, and Sub-Saharan Africa to, to provide some three different case studies just to show how different situations are in their groundwater conditions. And that's one of the things about not only groundwater, but water in general, is that it has these global characteristics, but also intensely local. So you say not enough use of groundwater in sub-Saharan Africa. Can you expand a bit on that? What, what does groundwater allow a community or a region or a state to do? There are a lot of people in sub-Saharan Africa who, who lack, lack basic access to water, period. So they either have to do the water walk or they're getting water, they're buying very expensive water from bottled water, which is 
maybe of questionable quality too. So groundwater, the characteristics of groundwater is that it, it's generally available everywhere. You can, it's a sort of a democratic resource, if you will. And if Africa had better, and there are a lot of people trying to work on this problem, if they had you know, proper well drilling techniques and, and capacity building for people to take care of their water supplies, better care of the water quality aspects, sanitation and so forth. It could have a huge impact on in that region of the world, which is actually, you know, has a lot of poor people in it and who are lacking in access to good quality water. Yeah, I'd like to just add that that one of the statistics that just really jumped out at me is that only 16% of sub-Saharan Africans have potable water piped into their homes. And, sub and, and I didn't realize how huge sub-Saharan Africa is. If you take the United States, China, and India, they would all, the landmass would all fit inside sub-Saharan Africa. This is a huge part of the world that is just very seriously underserved by groundwater. Hmm. Well, you trace in the book a couple waves of groundwater development, starting in the 1950s, kind of in the high plains of the U.S. with uh, pivot irrigation, and then in the 1970s in China and India and some of the Asian countries, and then today in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Is this current wave of groundwater development happening in a different manner than earlier eras? Is, is there something that we are learning how to do it better or more sustainably and more effectively? That's a good question. I don't know that... <laughs> I'm not sure of the answer to that. In Sub-Saharan Africa, it's a unique case. I mean, there are issues with whether or not it remains to be seen whether or not people will come in and essentially overdevelop the resource, particularly for, for large-scale intensive agriculture, irrigated agriculture, which would be a problem competing with the, with the needs of the basic needs of people for drinking water. So that remains to be seen. Uh, there are concerns about, you know, people coming in and essentially doing what's called land grabbing, for their, to provide their water, their food, which also means water grabbing. Southeast Asia, you know, they seem to have some of the same similar problems that they're dealing with. The land subsidence is a big issue in Cambodia and Vietnam. Of course, a big issue there is is arsenic also. So they're hopefully on on some of those they're learning some lessons from you know the arsenic story in West Bengal and Bangladesh and and something about subsidence. But there's a tendency to to unfortunately not learn from history in groundwater so far. Yeah, and I'd like to add that over 95% of the Earth's unfrozen freshwater is groundwater, which is an amazing amount, okay? But this is a misleading statistic. Much of that groundwater is too deep or otherwise uneconomical to pump. And then you have problems with uh, areas where there's a lot of groundwater, but you can't pump it or you're going to have serious land subsidence or stream flow depletion. And um, also contamination is an increasing problem with groundwater aquifers. So when, when it gets right down to it, you know, it, it's a limited and very precious resource. And yet I think there is this kind of uh, wide-scale paradigm that just put in a well, you know, and just pump and that it's this limitless supply. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. That was one of the kind of scientific technical concepts I was going to ask you to explain this difference between the volume of, of groundwater versus available groundwater or usable groundwater. Uh, so can you, either of you go a bit more into that? So how looking at how much groundwater available might not be the best question to ask? So just taking the United States, for example, I, th I think a major issue there, I mean, as Rosemary mentioned, there's a lot of issues, saltwater intrusion and subsidence, but probably a key one, particularly in the Western United States, but not exclusively, certainly in the Midwest and across the country, is the, is the effects of groundwater pumping on stream flow depletion. So when you pump and 
when you pump groundwater, you can't take the water off the bottom, right? It's going to it's eventually going to draw down the water from the top. And it, there may be a very small amount of saturated material that's actually contributing to stream flow. So with a minor amount of depletion of the total volume of groundwater, one can have significant effects on stream flow, particularly during low flow periods. So you have, a, I mean, you have places in the United States, like in Washington State, where you are, that are actually limiting individual domestic wells because of concerns about pumping on stream flow. So the stream flow groundwater connection is one that really hasn't been resolved very well because of the different laws were put in place and and surface water prior appropriation, for example, system was put in place before people really appreciated the, the effects of groundwater. So state agencies and others around the country are playing catch up and trying to figure out how to work within this framework of laws that exist and property rights and manage their groundwater resources usefully, as well as the surface water supply. Uh, just so I give people an, an image to, to hold on to, if we think about this, the cream rising to the top, the, the important portion of the groundwater might be the first you know, 100 feet, couple hundred feet, even if it extends several thousand feet downward, so that your real impacts happen in a, in a very small band of total groundwater, right? That's correct. And in some systems, it can be tens of feet that are really controlling the effect, the connection between the groundwater and the surface water. And how well understood is, uh, is that dynamic? And how well is it incorporated into, say, decisions about how much water we're allowed to use? Well, I think the basic principles that have been there for a long time and are, are, are fairly well understood. And they're actually pretty good tools to try, you know, models and approaches. The real issue is really the institutional one and the legal one, how, how to work through. And, and part of the problem is because when you pump a well, delay between when you pump that well and when the impacts are going to occur on a stream or lake or wetland. And you don't know, you can make a prediction about when that will occur, but you can't really make much of a prediction about what the climatic conditions will be, for example, during that, that period. Will you be in a big drought? And so that makes it very challenging to regulate groundwater in the context of its impacts on surface water. There's also a um, kind of a, is, uh, you know, I think we wrote about it in terms of the tragedy of the commons problem that puppet my neighbor wills. That makes it even more difficult to get stakeholders on board. But, uh, are there any other concepts you think ought to be understood better by people who are making decisions either for a group, say policymakers, or for individual well owners, farmers, households that are trying to understand groundwater better and incorporate those lessons into their decisions. So we've mentioned the surface water, groundwater. I think the time delay, understanding sort of the time dynamics of groundwater and surface water interaction are, are important. I would say several others we kind of emphasize at the end is that in order to manage this resource, we show across the world top-down management doesn't work. So you have entrenched people pumping. Many of them, may, it may be their livelihood. You can't just come in and tell people from outside what to do. So you have to have this long, actually managing groundwater properly. It takes a lot of work. And where it's been done successfully, it's taken strong effort to bring in stakeholders into the process. And you kind of need that combination of engagement of stakeholders and some sort of outside pressure causes accountability and sort of dealing with the problem. So there, there, there's institutional issues. I'd say another one is that people might not appreciate is the importance of monitoring data because there's a tendency 
you know, when a flood happens, everybody suddenly realizes that you've got to manage, you know, you've got to gauge streams, for example. But lots of times groundwater is one that's monitoring is one of the first things to fall off the plate of, you know, government agencies when they do cutbacks and things like that. And then I guess the final one I'd add is the, the climate connection. So, so with with climate climate change, particularly in places like California, where you're going to have a lot less snow melt, earlier snow melt, that's going to put more pressure on already a precious groundwater resource. And so people have to have to understand that concept. And actually, if I could, I'll add one more, and that is managed aquifer recharge. I think is really important to to use when we have time, when we have extra water to find ways to store it underground, which we already do in a lot of places, but still not thought of enough in, in, in thinking about water overall. Yeah, the advantage with managed aquifer recharge versus surface surface reservoirs is there's such a huge rate of evaporation, uh, you know, particularly in the West with uh, surface reservoirs. And managed aquifer recharge comes with its own challenges, but it has some really distinct, distinct strengths over surface water storage. And so we're clear, managed aquifer recharge means putting water back into the ground uh, at times of, of surplus, say, during floods or high flows, so that the water can be withdrawn later during drier times. Right, yeah. Exactly. Arizona has uh, really an advanced managed aquifer recharge program in their uh, managed parts of the state. But it's, it's becoming more and more a, a viable solution. It depends, of course, you have to have the right geology to do it, but uh, there's a lot of potential there. One of the issues with, with groundwater and with aquifers in general is that uh, they're largely underground and everyone says they're underappreciated and hidden and obscured. Do either of you have a, a favorite aquifer for whatever reason? Could be the, the interesting you know, geo-hydrogeological properties or some interesting management issues that arise? That's the thing. There's a lot of different interesting situations. So that's one of the things we write about a lot. For example, the Edwards Aquifer is actually a very interesting story. We have to pick one here. That aquifer actually responds quickly to climate change. It's a karst aquifer, uh, meaning that the, it's uh, the solution from the limestone. And it has endangered species in its outflow. So it, it discharges through a couple springs that have endangered species in them. Back in the days of Governor Babbitt, actually, when he was Secretary of Interior, they came to, to a court case and they created the Edwards Aquifer Authority, which manages that aquifer to try to make sure that there's sufficient water spring flow for the endangered species. And it was very controversial at the time, might be still to some extent, but, but what it caused was that they managed that aquifer and it, they're not, not only managing it for the endangered species, but they're managing it for the agricultural interests in the area, as well as cities like San Antonio, which at one time was completely dependent on that, on that aquifer. Just so people have a sense of where we're, we're talking about, the Edwards Aquifers in Central Texas. Correct. San Antonio, Austin, that area. In the process of sort of having to deal with the endangered species issues, They've actually created a, an authority that manages the aquifer, and they've gone through extreme droughts in recent years, but yet they did they managed to get through those droughts in, in large part because of the management practices that they already had in place, driven by those endangered species issues initially. Quite a few people name the Edwards as their favorite aquifer because I think all of these, one, it's, it's a rather unique system, and two, there's a lot of management issues that arise with it. So it's interesting that you say that. 
There's a, a part in the book near the end, page 245, if people have the book in front of them, where I want to read you the, this passage and, and talk about it. Uh, you say that this is in uh, the concluding section about how to manage groundwater. And you said that ideally establishing groundwater sustainability is a societal decision made through informed public participation. Within this highly complex mix of competing interests, environmental and earth scientists are increasingly challenged to become creative and socially sensitive team players. Simply communicating the facts will no longer get the job done. So I think this is interesting given the, the current debate about the role of science in public discourse and the role of scientists in general being not just people that do studies, but also are involved in this political process. So how do you think that simply communicating the facts will no longer get the job done? What, what will? A wonderful example is the San Pedro River in, this is southeastern Arizona, and a lot has been written about the San Pedro, and, you know, it's had all kinds of special protections and everything, and yet, because there's a very sizable military forge right in the area, and then the town of Sierra Vista, the, the pumping there has, is really threatening the San Pedro, which is the largest bird flyway in the United States. It's, uh, you know, I don't know the number again, but it's it's the largest. At any rate, the the Nature Conservancy got involved in this. Uh, we, we do this story in the book, but, oh, I don't know, late 90s something, and just got the stakeholders on board. And then they, they all finally decided they needed a uh, groundwater model that they could all agree on and understand. They brought in the U.S. Geological Survey to do the model. And unlike most cases where the scientists just do the science and then present the results as a finished product, if you will, the, the uh, scientists involved in this modeling met with the stakeholders on a regular basis, talked about the, the latest steps, made sure everybody understood the, the process, what was going on. And so by the time they got to the end of the model, when it was complete, everybody understood the model, they believed in it, and it's guided their management decisions. So this is a real success story. It's, it's having a major impact on addressing the San Pedro. Yeah, and Brett, when I first went into groundwater many years ago, it's a very specialized topic. So I think, it, just as Rosemary described, scientists tended to, to go and do their work and then sort of present it in a report, which probably ends up on a bookshelf somewhere. And I think that really, the only, as we've mentioned, there's a lot of stakeholders involved in, in groundwater. And so the only way, the best way to get that information and, and have reliable information is to get scientists actually engaged in interacting with with people um, as they're trying to work through these issues in their in their particular areas. You've been listening to Hotspots H2O. Our guests today were William Alley and Rosemary Alley. Their book is High and Dry, Meeting the Challenges of the World's Growing Dependence on Groundwater. You can listen to this and other Hotspots episodes and read Circle of Blue's water reporting at circleofblue.org.